Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. So I'm so glad to have David Williams here with me in London. Welcome to my podcast, David. Thank you. So David uh, uh, Williams founded Impact in 1980 with nothing more than an idea and a passion for people development. And today Impact is a multi-award winning creative change agency, partnering with global brands in more than 50 countries from offices in the UK, Europe, USA and Asia Pacific. So David, who is Impact for and what is it for? It's for anyone who wants to achieve their full potential. So we work in the private sector with organizations, both large and small. We work with government departments and we work with not-for-profits. And the work that we do essentially is about change and development, but it's in all, all manner of different contexts. And the kind of work that we do is developing leadership, helping organizations to transform themselves from one place to another. And we have this concept of creating sustainable enterprise. So a lot of organizations are attracted to working with us to explore what it means to be a sustainable enterprise. What is typically the reason for this need for transformation? Is it something that they themselves really truly understand deep down that they need to? Or is it something that is kind of imposed on them? I think it depends on the organization you're talking to. But my view is that change is a constant. You know, we've been in business for 39 years and organizations have been changing throughout that whole period. And in every part of that period, there seems to be a focus on change as if change had never happened before. But change is a constant. Change happens all of the time. But organizations struggle with change, you know, because they, they invest a lot of time and energy in building a status quo and then when that status quo is, is threatened mm. it's very difficult for them to start to see themselves in a different shape or a different form um, so I think it's a constant dilemma that organizations face and also it's something that many organizations are fearful of and, and one of our roles is to help them look for the opportunities in change. I know that you've uh, some time ago spoken at the House of Lords and Downing Street to inspire corporates and, and, and also public bodies and to look beyond philanthropy and embrace the concept of doing well by doing good. How did that go? Well, it's a passion of mine. So I'm a fervent believer that if businesses especially can incorporate into their business model the kind of activities that will lead to positive social change, and restorative environmental strategies, then businesses are in the best place to make that change happen rapidly. They're far more agile than governments. They have the wherewithal that often not-for-profits and NGOs don't have to make change happen quickly. But they do need to be motivated to do that as an organization. Individually, we're all motivated by doing good. But organizationally, because of the structures we have, it's sometimes harder to help a private sector organization really embrace the whole concept of sustainable enterprise. And that's what those um, talks were designed to do. And yeah, they created a lot of opportunities for us to work with organizations that are looking to the future and are looking to make more of a positive change in the future. 
How do you, you know, bring to life the, the nexus between shareholder and societal values? I think the whole construct has to be examined. So if you look back to the turn of the century or before, then the way organisations were structured was very different to the current day. If you look at the Quaker movement, if you look at Cadbury's, for example, these were family-owned businesses who were, yes, very interested in making a profit, but also very interested in delivering a social change, a positive social change into the communities that they operated in, building whole towns for their workforce, perhaps pushing some of their own beliefs and views onto that workforce about no alcohol, trying to restrict the amount of gin that people were drinking at the time in the UK and replacing that with hot chocolate. You know, I think the construct of organisations in the early days was very different to where it is now. It was driven by family values. It was driven by the owners of the organisation genuinely wanting to contribute back to society in a philanthropic way. We've then moved to the current day model where shareholder value seems to be the main driver for an organisation. And um, I think that's changing rapidly now. I think we have to move that model from one of a quarterly examination of how profitable we can be to one of more of a long-term vision of the change that we're making in the world. And I think that the stakeholders of organisations are changing rapidly now from um, silent shareholders who are only interested in making a quarter upon quarter rise in, in the price of their shares to customers, to employees, to general society who are examining organisations and asking themselves the question, how does this organisation benefit us as a community, as a society, and how does it help us preserve this delicate environmental balance that we're currently ex experiencing? Mm. And still there are so many companies that are using this shareholder value as a, an excuse for being short-term, right? Mm. Why didn't we come further, you know, because it's 2018, it feels like the discussion about the societal value and the importance of it and the 360 degree way of working and thinking has been proven so many times that is also you know impacting the profit positively so where is the challenge i think what fascinates me is how businesses are looked at and looked at with a very critical eye and the people who are looking at them are saying why aren't they doing more why isn't this organization doing more to affect positive change and businesses aren't constructed currently to make positive change happen in the world. So what we have to find is where are the levers that would enable us to help businesses make positive change more rapidly than they are doing at the moment. I think those drivers are now emerging rapidly. I think we have a millennial workforce who are now saying, I don't want to work for an organisation that's trashing the planet. We have customers now who are in the main very, very sensitive to avoiding organisations and products that are actively damaging the world that we live in or are taking a stance on certain societal issues that in the view of those customers is the wrong stance. Mm. So I think there are plenty of um, levers there that we can draw upon. But the key argument, the key argument is, and this is, this is an argument that I sometimes find people, especially in the not-for-profit world, finding it difficult to get their head around, the key argument is how can you make an organisation more profitable by doing the right thing? And so it's not about philanthropy. It's not about charitable activity. It's not even about corporate social responsibility. It's about how can you reconstruct a business model so that by doing good in the world, it actually becomes more profitable. And then all of a sudden, all of the stakeholders are aligned 
and all of the stakeholders are helping that organization move rapidly to change our world into a better place. Mm. And then people who are listening are going to say, yeah, that's beautiful, but give us an example or a recipe of how to get there. I think there are examples out there, but they're still few and far between. Mm. And that is why I believe our work is so important. Mm. And what I found is the different sectors still, there's a lack of trust. There's a lack of trust between the private sector and the not-for-profits. There's a lack of trust between the private sector and the governments and as organizations. And yet when you bring people together who are mm. operating within these organizations, that trust is built immediately. As soon as a dialogue is started, people start to explore where the similarities are rather than always looking for the differences. And so if you can create the right kind of platform for organizations to meet and learn about each other's priorities and learn how they can help each other to move forward, that's when the magic happens. Mm. And so I think uh, whilst people are standing in their own little thiefdoms, throwing rocks at each other, very little's gonna happen. But when you get a corporate working actively with a not-for-profit on an issue that they share an interest in, it's amazing how quickly things can start to improve. And going back to you, what would you define as your, your passion is a word that's being used so much nowadays, but I mean, you know, the things that are really driving you so much that you would never give up on them, you know, even if it is going to make you suffer in one way or the mm. other. This has been, um, you know, my life's work. I've been doing what I'm doing now for 39 years. It started when I was 23 mm. and I have no expectation of stopping, you know, for the foreseeable future. And I often ask myself that question, what am I doing? What am I trying to do? And is it the best way to do it? And I am trying to, in my own small way, make a positive difference in the world. I don't think our organization alone can do that. We're only 250 people and we're quite big compared to many of our competitors. I think the way we can do that is by acting as a catalyst with organizations who have far more potential than we do, helping them to reconstruct their business model and to make it more effective. But the base level driver for me is probably the opposite to what you're expecting. I am really fearful of losing the world that I grew up in. I'm really fearful of my grandchildren growing up in a world where there are no polar bears, where there are no wild tigers or elephants. And, you know, that's a difficult message to deliver as a corporate responsibility. But if I'm really honest, that's the part of my mission mm. that I find the most difficult to come to terms with. And so I've always been looking for ways of trying to educate people about the importance of nature, the importance of the wild, the importance of our environment, from the perspective of preserving some of the unique qualities and some of the wild animals that are out there that are at risk of complete extinction because of our mismanagement of what we're doing. In the long term, I would like to think that the work I'm doing now will have a positive benefit on that as an end. Now, I often don't communicate that because there are many people in the world who don't even understand that. They don't even come to terms with nature. They don't even come to terms with the wild places. But um, I grew up in the countryside. I grew up on a small farm. And I've always been linked to the world through that lens, that set of lenses. And um, I would like to think that the end point of any change that I make in the world is one of preserving the environment that we've grown up in, in a much better place. As we become increasingly urbanized as a human race, I think people are losing the connections that we once had with where we're from. And my argument is that we're, we are all part of nature and without nature, we have nothing. So 
you asked me what my personal driver is and that's what it is it's about trying to preserve the natural world in much the same way as I came into it because I am fearful of that world collapsing because of the damage that humankind is doing to it. Are you very much out in the nature whenever you can yourself? Yeah, I find that uh, spending time on my own in the hills, in the mountains, is a great place to reflect. It's a great place to ask yourself deep questions. I'm quite an introvert. Um, so uh, yeah, I do appreciate being outside and find city life quite stifling, to be honest. Mm. So you think you're an introvert? like? posing as an extrovert when the job requires so. Absolutely, and I think there are a lot of us out there, but uh, yeah. you know, I put everything I've got into the work that I do and then I need to find time to recover. Otherwise, it's very difficult to keep going. So yeah. yeah, I can be very energetic when I need to be and quite persuasive when I need to be, but I also need that me time to, mm. to recover and, and to kind of review where I'm at and reflect upon what I need to do next. I was a little bit I don't want to say study you, but I was studying you in the sense that seeing how you were relating to people and talking and, and, and interacting with people yesterday during your big conference uh, yesterday here in London about innovation for good and all the companies that were there and, and all your employees and so on. And uh, I could notice that there is some very humble, very respectful way of, of approaching people and dealing with them and so on that is coming like from a genuine place which uh, I would just assume is one of the reasons that I know that you, you are an award-winning company in terms of you know, being the best place to work at, awards and so on that, that your company has. That it comes, it must come, I guess, emanate from you and your values. I think that I like to surround myself with people who kind of share, have a shared purpose. And yeah. so um, when we organize conferences and invite people to come along to talk about innovation for good, Mm. then my first reaction is these people have come because they're passionate. They have the same passions as me. So mm. I have a high degree of respect for people who are trying to make a change in the world in the same way that I am. I think everything starts with people and I'm very respectful of people's views, whether they're different to mine or the same. And I think that the one quality in the world that I've grown to dislike the most is arrogance. So I do try to present a humble presence mm. when I can. But sometimes you have to get tough. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> like when? When did that happen? Well, you know, I think some people might might mistake quietness and politeness for weakness. And mm. so, you know, I, I don't think I'm a weak person. I just think I'm, I've been brought up properly to be respectful of others. <laughs> and what transformational points in your life have influenced you the most so far? Yeah, it's an interesting one. And a lot of the work we do is about what I call pivotal moments. So, you know, I think most people can track back to one or two times in their life where they stopped doing what they were doing and reviewed where they, where they were at at that time and decided what to do differently in the future. Uniquely for me, two very pivotal moments came very early on in my life. One, when I was 10 years old, I'm the eldest son of four children and we lived in a farming family, farming community. And at the age of 10, we recognized that um, we'd invested far too quickly in a very, very small farm and grown it to the point where we couldn't pay back the debts. And my father made the very difficult decision to sell it so we could pay the debts off. So at the age of 10, I remember standing there in the farmyard, watching everything that we'd worked so hard for um, throughout the whole of my life to that point, cows, 
equipment going round and round in a circle being sold off by the auctioneer they even tried to sell my dog which was quite upsetting and at that moment I realized that no I'm not going to be a farmer because the farm's gone <laughs> so what am I going to do with my life so I started asking myself those deep questions right from that very early age and I think the learning points from that experience were this is what failure feels like and it's not a good feeling um, so a part of me ever since then has had this fear of failure it's not mm. something that I'm proud of but it's there and I do wake up in the mornings thinking what can go wrong today and how can I avoid making those mistakes what can I do to make today successful and secondly I made a promise to myself at that moment in time that whatever I did in the future I wouldn't make those same mistakes I would make sure that that from a financial perspective I didn't overstretch myself um, that was the first pivotal moment and then the second one came when again quite early on in my life when I was 16 we were living in the middle of nowhere out in the sticks um, still in a fairly kind of what I would now in hindsight describe as poverty at the time it was idyllic we had no bathroom we had no toilet we had running water we had electricity by then but we hadn't done until I was 10 and I was also kind of quite a shy introverted person still quite shy introverted living in a community where the nearest neighbor was probably three quarters of a mile away so you didn't have a lot of contact outside of school and luckily someone at school recognized either that I needed some help or that I had some potential that other people hadn't discovered and sent me on a a four-week outward bound course and again outward bound is a terminology that is banded around but actually there's only one outward bound organization and I'll be forever grateful to them and I turned up at a place called Abedovi in Wales where outward bound was first created along with a, another 119 young men I think I was the, the youngest one on the whole program which was quite formidable when I first arrived and during those four weeks I did things I'd never done before I learned things about myself that I didn't know existed. I took on challenges and beat them, challenges that I never thought I'd be able to overcome. Physical, social, emotional challenges, and um, thoroughly enjoyed every second of the whole experience. It was quite a clumsy process, but I came out the other end a completely different person. It was a life-changing experience. And I can remember as if it was yesterday, coming home on the train, and uh, every time the train stopped, either people got off the train or I got off the train onto another train until eventually I arrived back in my hometown on my own, on the train, in floods of tears, partly through elation at what I'd achieved and partly through desperation because it had all ended. And I made a promise at that moment in time that whatever it was they did to me, I was going to do it to other people. And that is still my mantra today, <laughs> you know, clumsy as that may sound, that has been the driver. So from that point, I recommitted to education, did well in my exams, trained as a teacher, never intending to teach in a school, only intending to do the work that I'm doing now, and became an expert in experiential learning, which is the concept that we've refined at Impact over the years. Mm. And that experiential dimension in everything you do, how do you evolve that all the time? Is it a structured process or, or is it based on your experience with all your clients and how do you how do you go about it well i think the essence of good experiential learning is naturally the experience it's the facilitation that lies behind the experience so the first thing is we need to make sure that the people who are facilitating that experience with the participants have the right skill set have the right perceptions have the right mindfulness to be able to 
help those participants come through that experience in the right kind of way. But stepping back from that, then yes, we have become experts in creating uh, memorable, novel, challenging experiences that are based in the real world that help people or actually force people to stop, look at who they are, look at how they've got to where they've got to and uh, recreate a future for themselves that perhaps wasn't the future they thought they would have before they came into the experience. Is there a long-term solution or long-term formula for businesses that you believe in? Yes, absolutely. I think the current construct of business will change rapidly over the next 10 to 20 years. Uh, We're already seeing it happen. So we're seeing uh, disruptor brands creeping into the market. We're seeing organizations that are created by entrepreneurs becoming more and more important in what until now has been the domain of the large multinational uh, with a faceless ownership. And so I think that will change the way we operate from a business perspective quite quickly over the next 20 years. I also think that uh, dispersed ownership will become much more of the norm. So at the moment, the big pension houses, the big investment banks own the majority of quite a lot of the organizations that are out there and their main driver is return on shareholder value. I think that construct will gradually change or probably quite rapidly change over the next few years and that shareholders will become far more diverse, they'll become far more dispersed and what they want from an organization will change rapidly from one of returning a financial value to the shareholder to one of making the kind of changes in the world that that shareholder wants to see happen. And do you see what is the common denominator between those? A realization that we can't continue the way we are doing Mm -hmm. and a passion at all levels of society to make societal change, to preserve environmental integrity and to recognize that every one of us has a role to play in that, including the businesses that we own, including the jobs that we are employed to do, including our own community responsibilities. We will all quite quickly, I think, over the next few years, realize that if if we're not making it happen, no one's making it happen. It's not someone else's responsibility, it's our responsibility. And uh, we're all now seeing on a day-to-day basis the results of not taking those responsibilities seriously enough. And so I see a generation, you know, my kids are already like this, you know, I see a generation coming through who will not accept the kinds of behaviours and the kinds of poor management that we've been prepared to accept to date. An example of such a behaviour? I think the big picture is organisations that are clearly and visibly damaging the planet and being allowed to get away with it. I think legislation will creep in to stop that from happening. But before legislation comes in to stop it from happening, you're already seeing more and more organisations taking the first step, which is to reduce the amount of damage they're doing to the environment, Mm -hmm. but also taking the second step and recognising that by doing that, they can actually increase customer loyalty Mm -hmm. by actually demonstrating they're having a positive effect upon the um, planet. I knew uh, Ray Anderson really well before he unfortunately passed away. And he ran an organization called, it's still running now, Interface, a flooring company. Probably when he came on the scene, one of the most environmentally damaging companies you could have ever wished to meet, creating latex and plastic floor covering 
and uh, thrown it away when it was when it was no longer used. And he set out to completely transform his organisation and to bring in a process of manufacturing and a process of leasing flooring instead of selling flooring to companies that was unheard of in the market. And I think that organisation is a visible sign of how you can take the dirtiest of environmental processes, turn it around into something that's almost 100% clean and build a customer loyalty because you're doing the right thing. That's admirable. What about media companies? Do you have any experience or examples from that world that has also taken charge and, and, and because they're influencing us so much, they have such a power? Yeah, I think, you know, Impact, as I said before, is only a small organization. So our way of working is to try and influence organizations from the inside by showing them what's possible. So uh, one of our clients, Thomson Reuters, came to us probably about eight years ago now, and they were concerned about losing emerging talent within their organization. And they wanted a solution for turning that around. So reducing the level of attrition at, at that particular level in the organization. And so we put together a program for them, which linked very closely into their own CSR strategy and responded to the fact that they are signatories to the Millennium Development Goals. And uh, the program consisted of six weeks of virtual webinar-based facilitated experiential learning. My big concern there was how can we get people to show up because they're all in different parts of the world. Mm. We'll send them a task bundle as a kind of um, virtual cohort on a Monday. Mm. We'll expect them to complete that task bundle by the Friday when, the, when they meet up on the webinar for a discussion, a facilitated discussion on how it's gone. How can we make sure they turn up on that webinar? And so we approached about six different not-for-profit charities based out of India who were pursuing different activities that were in alignment with Thomson Reuters' um, signatory to the Millennium Development Goals. And we brought them onto the webinar, one leader from each of these charities at each webinar. And so the participants, their expertise is in trusted communication. The participants were asked to become consultants to these charities, these not-for-profits, and to help them come up with plans and strategies that would enable them to reach out into rural India more effectively to help educate people as to what to do and what not to do, for example, around the issue of infant mortality or malaria. And this also formed a very strong relationship between the participants from Thomson Reuters and the individual who was leading the charity in, in India. And then on week seven, we all fly to Mumbai. So, you know, we have 10 participants from Thomson Reuters who've never met each other before, landing in, in Mumbai airport, living in, a, in quite a, a sparse hotel where we ensure they get good clean water and good clean food. So there are no problems with health and hygiene, but they're actually operating with the charities that they've been working with on the webinars in the slum areas of India and delivering the ideas that they've been discussing for the previous six weeks. And it was nothing short of a life-changing experience. Yeah. This was the first time they'd come up against abject poverty. It was the first time they'd been in an environment where you can see for yourself the challenges that organizations face in trying to preserve life, in trying to educate people. And um, so these participants after five days in Mumbai, a facilitated, very um, live experiential learning situation. They returned to their own places and then carried on working on projects for Thompson Reuters. And the results were tremendous. I mean, the results 
were a dramatic reduction in the levels of attrition of people leaving the organisation. All of them got a promotion as a result of participating on the programme from their own merits and a significant number of them were promoted twice and the whole project was run for quite a long time, I think it was about eight years we ran that project and it had a tremendous effect upon the organisation and demonstrated to me that as soon as you link um, an individual's passions to an organisation's goals, you build loyalty, you you build innovation, you build um, influence. And so in that small way, I think we were able to make a huge difference to that organisation and show that organisation how it could develop similar strategies for itself to create higher levels of loyalty, to create higher levels of enjoyment and um, fulfilment throughout the employee base through the whole organisation. That's a wonderful example. Did you do similar things then after that experience with other organisations? Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much the norm for the kind of work that we do. So Mm -hmm. whenever we are engaged to create some kind of solution for a client, you know, as a creative change agency, we never do the same thing twice. We look to try and bring together all of the levers that are available within that organisation to make the solution as relevant and as dynamic and perhaps as rebellious as we possibly can. Mm. And it it sets a catalyst going within the organisation where they can run with that idea and and grow it for themselves because they've seen the light. And it might be something as simple as helping a business realise that if they want to change, then they have to look at it not as a top-down process, but as a process that emerges at all levels within an organisation right the way through to bringing customers into an experiential learning situation to actually show the company what's good, but also what's bad about the way they're operating and use that as a catalyst for change. So if you would assume that you have all doors open and all resources available to you, what would you then innovate or change, You know, whether it's in your world or outside? So personally, coming back to where my initial drivers are and my passions, the thing that shocks me the most is when I hear about another 60 elephants that have been slaughtered for their tusks or another rhino that's been killed out in the bush for its horn. And so, you know, no holds barred, every resource available, I would solve that. That would be my personal priority because we can do something about that we can eradicate poaching by looking at what is driving poaching, by looking at the communities who feel they can only make money by poaching, uh, by looking at the whole trade in, the immoral trade in in ivory and uh, in rhino horn, which is just ridiculous. And because it falls amongst so many different stools at the moment, no one seems to be able to get hold of it and and stop it. Mm. So that would be a very personal mission. And I would love to bring the skills and resourcefulness of the organisations that are out there in the world, bring them to bear upon that issue and and solve it for good so that we don't have to face the prospect of losing these um, incredible creatures from our planet for good. But stepping back from that, because as you probably guessed, I'm quite passionate about that, I would look at reconstructing business models so that they can achieve profit at the same time as affecting positive social change and creating strategies for preserving the integrity of the environment. And and I think as soon as we have a tipping point that demonstrates that is the business model of the future, 
then some fantastic things will start happening quite quickly. And what do you need or how would you go about doing that? Well, I'm doing as much as I can at the moment. <laughs> Just trying to, you know, rather than tell people, because people don't respond well to tell, trying to show people, you know, through their own resourcefulness, how that business model is far more effective than perhaps the business models we aligned to over the past 20 or 30 years. Mm. And once organizations see the amount of passion they're unleashing within their own business, we, we have this terminology in impact called liberating brilliance. And I'm an optimist and I believe there is good in everyone. And organizations at the end of the day are quite simply collections of people who've chosen to be in that place at that time with those other people. Mm. And if we can liberate the brilliance of people, then we can achieve transformational change in a fairly rapid time frame. Mm. Is there any way to scale what you're already doing together with other organizations or other agencies or other key people to make it happen faster? I really appreciate the idea of disruptors. And I think a disruptor stops becoming a disruptor when it becomes bureaucratic. And so there's a fine line between fast moving piracy and kind of bureaucratic nonsense. And, and often the amount of energy it takes to bring different organizations together into some kind of union and then move together with some kind of compromise almost destroys the whole remit for why you're trying, what you're trying to achieve. Whereas mm. my own preference has always been to kind of disrupt, go in, shock, collect people around a cause and give them the wherewithal, give them the tools to make the changes they need to make. Mm. I think it's that kind of fast-moving, disruptive type of um, organization that, that I've always aligned myself with. Mm. And every time we open a new office, and we've, we've been doing this gradually over the years rather than rapidly, every time we open a new office, every time we, re we recruit a new person, I ask myself the question, are we going one step too far here? Because as soon as impact becomes a bureaucratic nonsense, then mm -hmm. we've lost our remit to operate. Is there any uh, new market or country that you are planning to enter into? We've got pretty good representation around the world, but there are three markets that I have my eyes on at the moment. One is the Middle East, so we have no physical presence in the Middle East at the moment, although we do quite a lot of work out there. Whilst I have a sister company in Africa, Impact itself does not have a presence in Africa, and we're very excited to look into the potential for for working out there, both for personal reasons and also for the opportunities it affords us to bring together Western-based organizations with African-based organizations to see how they can catalyze change in a place where it's, it's very much needed, but also to learn, you know, hopefully from communities where we've forgotten elsewhere in the world how to operate as a community. And then the third area is South America. And I'm not quite sure where we go in South America, but we're not doing enough work out there and I would like to do more. And if you would give one piece of advice to leaders, however you want to define those, what would that be? I think the first bit of advice, and as you've mentioned already, it's an, it's an overused word, but the first bit of advice is connect what you're doing to your own passions because you're not operating in, in an authentic space if you haven't done. So don't see work as something that is apart from you. It should be the same thing. And if it is the same thing, then when you rock up for work each day, you'll be doing what you love and, and that's what matters. I don't align with this theory that work is separate to life. You know, work-life balance is an anathema to me. 
um, it's all the same thing <laughs> and if it's not then you're getting something dramatically wrong and uh, there's less and less people who are especially from the, the younger generation or even millennials that want to be part of an organization and dream about being one of the employees of that company right what they're talking about is all about collaboration expression and having fun while working cooperating kicking off their own maybe companies or organizations and doing things together and that's what you hear and, and then you read the McKinsey etc report saying that still 75% of the people as a workforce lack the meaning and don't want to get up and go to work on Monday morning it's still the case right so it's a generational shift or what do you think we're seeing well I think the good thing is we're seeing aspirations rising I grew up with a generation of people who looked for a steady job for the rest of their life and hoped to work for the same company for the rest of their life I don't think that's the case anymore unless you're lucky enough to work for impact I'm very very uh, motivated by young people and young people's aspirations and I think we're living in a world where change is much more the norm than it used to be, where people have already perhaps seen parts of the world that I never saw until I was in my 30s. You know, my kids were commenting on airline food at the age of five, and I don't think I flew in a plane until I was 23. Um, so the world is a smaller place, like it or not, and the internet helps us connect. So I think people can see where the opportunities are far more clearly than they were before. And I do worry about, you know, a lot of the practices that are happening at this moment in time that really are not particularly positive in terms of the employee-employer connection. But I'd like to think that's short-lived and that we can leapfrog all of this issue and, and end up in a much better place. I do think there are a whole generation of organisations enabled by technology, enabled by the positivity of youth that will pretty soon overtake some of the kind of more staid traditional and damaging organizations that we're currently forced to put up with. Sometimes I'm thinking about it would be lovely to be 20 years younger so that I can experience what's going to happen for longer. And uh, also because 20 years ago when I was always like fighting for thinking about and aspiring to be a helper to create this purpose-driven leadership that we want today that is becoming almost a mainstream thought back then and everybody was looking at me as like what fluffy stuff is she talking about you know <laughs> exactly. so in that sense I said oh no you know I was like not in line with the time somehow I agree and I, and I think what that then needs to be reinterpreted as is the best thing we can do is to prepare those young people for success mm -hmm. and to help them on their own journey and hopefully they can do the things we weren't able to do. But if you were to give advice to yourself, let's say 15 years ago or 20, whatever is feasible for you, what, what would it be? You know, I took a lot of risks. I did a lot of things differently. And there was a lot of tut tutting in the background. But I wish I'd taken more risks. And I wish I'd moved faster and done more things more quickly. So I think, and you why? Know, because... 39 years on I can see that I could have been perhaps more challenging when I was younger I think we've grown our organization quite rapidly and quite successfully but at the same time I think back to some of the things we did in the early days and and we allowed ourselves to be restricted by convention we allowed ourselves to do things that only went so far and could have gone further 
So I think in that beautiful situation where you can look back and think about how you might have mm -hmm. done things differently, then I would have done more, more quickly and taken more risks. But at the time, probably not. And maybe that's the reason why you are now stretching the borders more, right? Mm. Yeah, I think so, yeah. And what do you think is the one most important thing for companies to focus on right now, if there is one common denominator? I think it's to focus on the long term and to get away from short termism. You know, the companies that I really respect and admire are the ones that are thinking about where they'll be in the next 20 years time, not the ones that are thinking about where they'll be in the next quarter or even the next two years. And there's a lot of talk about agility and I agree with that. I think when I say, where are you going to be in 20 years time, that isn't a point in time. Mm. That is a shape, that is a, how will we be operating as an organization in 20 years time? I've always believed that life's a journey, not a destination. And I think that um, you've got to prepare yourself for the journey. And I think that's the most important thing to do as the leader of a business. How can I ensure this organization is still operating in its best possible shape in 20 years time? And what do I need to do now to prepare for that? And also it might be so, right, that certain companies, organizations are just made to be here for 80, 100 years or so, and then either totally transform, right, or into something, yeah. or just die. Yeah, exactly. I mean, death in that sense could also be a solution for many companies. Yeah. Nobody said that you, you created a company so that it's going to last forever, mm -hmm. right? It's going to be the acceptance of that thought as well, because mm -hmm. if something is completely dying, something new will also be born. So. Yeah, I agree. I think one of the anathemas of our time is this belief that growth through acquisition is a good way to build a business. And I fervently disagree with that. Mm. You know, I think growth through acquisition is a way of taking one culture and trying to blend another culture into it. It's a way of replicating jobs and then trying to destroy jobs. I'm struggling to think of any examples of growth by acquisition having a successful outcome. There's usually issues and problems that occur in that whole process. Whereas organic growth, I believe, is one of the best ways to grow, especially if it's rapid organic growth. And I agree with you. I do believe that an organization has its time and its place and its space. And as in nature, things are born, they live and they die. To finish off on a, on a really big scale, what do you think the world needs most at this time? I think the world needs purposeful leadership at all levels in society and at all levels in organizations where the focus is on helping us to be better citizens, helping us to address this rapidly forming issue of climate change and environmental degradation. So leaders who, who are prioritizing making the world a better place, as opposed to lining their own pockets. And in your environment, do you see more, more and more of those? Or is it because you, you have that eye, so you see them? <laughs> or I certainly spot them, you know, I'm probably actively looking for them. And I genuinely believe there is a generation of purposeful leaders mm. emerging, partly because they've seen the mistakes we've made and they don't want to make them themselves. And partly because 
that's what they believe in and that gives me tremendous optimism for the future. Great. So, David, thank you uh, so much for your time and thanks for sharing everything. You're a wonderful person. And uh, to find out more about Impact, where do they go? Our website is www.impactinternational.com or people can connect with us um, on that website through info at, if they want to talk to us directly, info at impactinternational.com. And uh, you will also find links and show notes on uh, corporateunplugged.com slash podcast. Uh, so remember to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Acast and also share this episode with your network and friends for impact. Share it with people you know would benefit from hearing this. Thanks for listening and until next time, live with purpose and remember to unplug. Ciao. Thank you. Thank you.